When I was in high school and into college, I worked in a hardware store. And a family that I knew through being involved in music in my hometown, they owned a chain of seven hardware stores throughout Northeast Ohio. And it was a good job. It paid more than minimum wage, so I really appreciated having it. Now, this was back in the days before a smaller operation like this had a computer. So part of this job was taking inventory. At the end of the year, in preparation for tax season, they would go through all seven stores and manually count every item they had in their inventory. And we'd pair up and we'd take turns going through all the items, one person out calling out what it was and the other person writing it down on a piece of paper. You know, back then, all the hardware items weren't neatly packaged like maybe you see more today. They had giant bins of things like pipes and screws and nails. And those items like screws and nails were a bear to count, you know, you count out about 25 and take a guess. One of the stores was an older building in downtown Ravenna and it had a basement with a dirt floor. So we're down there brushing back cobwebs and counting furnace filters and stuff like that. And for the packaged items, we went through every one of them on every rack, every shelf, high and low, and counted every one of them. And since some of those stores are out of town, sometimes we load up in a van and we drive there, sometimes an hour trip one way. And they tell us sometimes plan on a long day because we're trying to try and get the store all in in one day, depending on the size of the store. Now, I was glad for this job, and I was thankful because these folks actually approached me about coming to work for them. So I didn't have to go out and search for a job myself. But it wasn't the most interesting work in the world. And I remember telling myself on one of those inventory days, and once I got through school, I was never going to do a job that I hated. Now, for the most part, I've done that. Software development's been an interesting field. I've, I've watched it grow out of its infancy into something that impacts every one of our lives every single day. But while I've liked what I do in general, there have been projects I didn't like. There have been tasks I didn't care for. I worked with some people that didn't add value to my day. Uh, my work life has not always been ideal. And I bet there are many of you who are not working at your dream job. Maybe you aren't doing what you love, and it, and it may not be what you studied or trained for. You may not like your company or, or the, your boss or the people that you work with. It might be something that you do be, because it pays the bills. Or maybe it doesn't even do that much. Which brings me to a question. Should we only work at things that we love to do? Or should we do things that need to be done? On this weekend, when we honor the people whose work have built our country, whose, whose work continues to sustain it, we're going to focus on this subject of work. And we're going to explore this question and a lot of other things the Bible has to say about work. So before we dig into the Word, grab your study guide, get it handy, either from the worship folder or through the New Life app. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today, so having the Bible of your choice ready, paper or electronic, is going to be helpful. But first, let's ask God to be with us as we look at the Word today, okay? God, you know this morning as we look at this subject of work, we're going to share together many things that you say to us through scripture about it. God, I just pray that the Word would speak deeply to every heart here. I believe you really have some things you want to do in our hearts as we consider our work. And so, God, may we have spirit ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, to look at this subject of work, I, I think we should start at the beginning. It's a very good place to start, at least according to song. Some of you will get that later. All right, let's take a look at God's original design for work. Go to the very start of your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God saw the all he had made, and it was very good. Now notice right from the start, God gave mankind some tasks. What's he say? He says, subdue the earth and rule over the animals. Now, what's that phrase, subdue the earth, mean? Well, the word translated subdue in the Hebrew is the word kabosh, and it means subdue. There's an implication here that the earth isn't going to do man's bidding easily. It's implying that mankind is going to have to exert some strength to bring creation into submission. To subdue the earth as God commanded, it was going to take work. And God also says to rule over the animals. Now that Hebrew word for, that's used there for rule over is rada. It's a, it's a word that conveys royalty, like the rule of a king. But think about the kind of king that God desires, a king that was like Jesus was, one that cares for those under his authority. It doesn't mean mankind should exploit the animals, but they should be used in a way that shows good stewardship. Now let's skip ahead to Genesis chapter 2. And in verse 15, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So here, God gives Adam a job. He's to be the caretaker of the Garden of Eden. He's to work it and take care of it. Now, this is an outflow of that command to subdue the earth that we saw in chapter 1, but it has a bit of a softer connotation. The Hebrew word here, shamar, means to exercise great care over. Adam is to take care of the garden on an ongoing basis. The implication here is improvement. Adam is to leave the garden in better shape than when he started. Now, I want us to see something important here because I think some of us have this misguided idea that work is some kind of punishment or something bad. And that's not true at all. God commanded Adam to subdue the earth. He gave man rule over the animal kingdom. He gave Adam the job of caring for the Garden of Eden before sin had entered creation. In God's original design for mankind in the universe, there was work. Work was ordained by God and assigned to Adam by God. And God said that his creation was very good. So we see that work was part of God's plan for mankind from the beginning. But let's jump to the end. Notice that God's also going to assign mankind work in heaven. Listen to this from the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, starting in the very first verse. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. God's servants, meaning us, will serve him. The word here used for serve has this connotation of service in the temple. There's a lot of thoughts about the kinds of things we'll be doing, but suffice it to say, this work is going to be the most fulfilling work we'll have ever experienced. We're going to serve God while seeing him face to face. Work is a good thing. God always intended mankind to work, even when creation was in its pure state before sin and even in the new heaven after sin. But we live in between that original sinless creation and the future time when sin is ultimately defeated once and for all. We find ourselves in a sinless, imperfect world, and that has implications for our work. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam, he said, meaning God, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now these verses spell out what's known as the curse. Since mankind sinned, since Adam and Eve willfully disobeyed God's specific instructions, creation was cursed. This rebellion against God is known as the fall of man. All of creation was forever changed when mankind chose its own way instead of God's way. Adam and Eve decided what they wanted trumped God's law. And they saw what they did has affected every human being since. We've all had to deal with the consequences of it. Now, the curse changed the nature of our work. And what God's saying here is that work would become harder. Now, God expresses the nature of the curse here in agricultural terms, which makes sense, right? Because that was what Adam's job was. But for us here today, most of us aren't farmers, so it may not be as easy for us to understand this. Now, I can still appreciate the curse when it comes to planting. You know, in front of our house, we have an area, you know, that has plants and flowers. In the spring, we put down some nice, fresh mulch, and it looked great. But in no time, just a matter of a few days, you had that creeping vine stuff, you know, that wraps itself around everything, and it gets all over. And then those nettles, you know what I'm talking about? Those, those little ones that have all, like needles all over it. And you have to pull them from the root, and you're going to get stabbed for your trouble. And they just grow back really fast. Um, you know, I was just out there a couple of weeks ago and got rid of all of them again. And I'm not, two days later, there they are back. But let's express the curse maybe in a way that might make sense to more of us here in 21st century suburban life. Thorns and thistles and toil and sweat might be stress and overtime and mundane meetings and bad bosses. Think about it. If sin hadn't corrupted our work, we'd be working with people who obey God's laws. We'd be doing things God's way. Well, there'd still be things to do, but... There'd still be work, but it would be easier. 
working with people without the influence of sin in our relationships. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? So given all this, how do we as followers of Christ help to bring order in a chaotic and sinful world? How should we view our work in light of God's character and the truth of the gospel? Now, I've heard a lot of messages on work over the years. Maybe you have too. And most of them involve commands. A lot of imperatives, things that we must do. And it's certainly true that Scripture has a lot to say, and it does give commands regarding work. But I want us to look at work in the light of the grace we've been shown through the gospel. I want us to instead consider the indicatives of work, the things that we do that show our heart for God. Things we do because we so appreciate the grace that God has shown us that it changes the way that we live and the way that we work. First, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about this. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now let's stop there for a sec. Because the preaching I've heard that talks about work is quick to quote verse 31 and stop there. There's no question this verse applies to our work, but I want us to keep going and get the full idea of what Paul is saying here. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please anyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? Yes, verse 31, we should work wholeheartedly. We should see our work as something done for God's glory. But why? I think that's why verses 32 and 33 in the first verse of chapter 11 matter so much here. Paul is saying we should do these things for three reasons. First, don't cause someone else to stumble. Set a good example for others. And he's not just talking about being a good example to believers because he mentions the church, but he also says to Jews or Greeks. That means everybody. Don't let somebody else look at you and say, well, you know, Joe isn't working very hard. Why should I? Bring glory to God by doing your best. Second, don't seek your own good, but the good of many, meaning others. Paul knew that wisdom of Mr. Spock. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. He's saying that setting a good example not only doesn't cause others to stumble, but it can point them to Christ. Be Christ-like in how you work. Be Christ-like to the people at work. Be Christ-like in how you handle the money you make from work. And third, Paul's finally saying that he's living this out by following the example of Jesus. And therefore, the Corinthians should follow Paul's example. So what's the example of Jesus when it comes to work? We're going to get to that in just a second. Paul's real consistent when he says something similar to the Colossians in chapter 3. Let's look at verse 17 there. Paul says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then, just a few verses later, Paul says this, down in verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul's telling us that our work just doesn't serve a company or stockholders or a board of directors or 
a government entity. It serves Jesus himself. Now think about that for a minute. If Jesus gave his all for you, if Jesus is willing to go to a cross to die for your sins that you could spend forever with him instead of an eternity separated from him in hell, isn't he worth working well for? So the next time you're mad at your employer, you're saying something to yourself like, you know, they don't pay me enough for this job. The next time you're tempted to justify not giving your all in your work, realize you aren't hurting your boss or your company. You're hurting Jesus Christ. The one who took the nails for you, isn't he worth your devotion to your job? Hey, human bosses and organizations are flawed. I get that. They're messed up because of the curse. We all experience that every day in our jobs. On their own merit, they certainly aren't worth giving your all for. If that was the standard by which we gave our effort, it would be easy to justify not working real hard. But Jesus gave everything for you. If you've placed your faith and trust in him, follow his example as Paul did and give him your devotion in your work. See your work as serving Jesus. You're not just working to do something you study to do or to pay the bills or maybe something you find personally fulfilling. You're serving Jesus through your work. Back in Colossians 1, in verse 15, Paul says this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now Paul says here that Jesus is holding all things together. Consider this, in your work, you are actually assisting Jesus in his work. Jesus brings order where there's chaos. It's what God's always done. In our work, we follow his example and assist Jesus by bringing order to just a little corner of the chaos. It's our part in the subduing of the earth that God called us all to do from the very beginning of creation. You know, grace needs to permeate our entire world for you, not just like where we're going to spend eternity. God's using all of us to renew creation. God's doing good in this world through our work. Now, I want us to see something else about the kind of work that we do. Think about this. Is one kind of work better than another? I think many of us have this idea that working in a ministry is somehow a higher calling than, than secular work. Is that true? The English word vocation comes from the Latin word voca, which means, interestingly enough, to call. I think many of us see ministry as a calling, but the implication of the word vocation is that all work is a calling. And I think the verses that we've looked at so far from Genesis to Revelation and in between square with that view. You know, we often focus on passages in Scripture that talk about calling to ministry. But 1 Samuel 16 talks about God calling David to political leadership. If your work is serving Jesus, no matter what it is, 
then I think all work is a high calling. Work isn't a necessary evil, so we don't starve and have some place to live. It's a calling. So how can we glorify God through our work, as Scripture has talked about? Well, this isn't an exhaustive list, but I think here's some practical ways. God's glorified when we acknowledge that our work is to please Him, not men. We already read Colossians 3, 23 and 24, so enough said about that. God's glorified when we are honest, even if it hurts or costs us something. Listen to Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. God's made it very clear the kind of heart that he's looking for. You know, for people that are living our lives in view of grace, these are the kind of attitudes we're going to have. There's also the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife tried to tempt him. He could have given in, but when he did what was right, it cost him everything. His boss didn't see that Joseph had actually tried to honor him. The wife lied about him. He spent 12 years in prison because of it. That's a high price for integrity. God's glorified when we honor our superiors and submit to their authority. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to the Lord. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Romans 13, 7, Give respect, uh, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now look, I know it's easy to be saying stuff like, you know, my boss is an idiot. You know what? Even if they are, you owe them a certain amount of respect. Jesus submitted to the Roman authorities when he was wrongly and falsely accused. Human leadership is ordained by God. Not just political leaders, but be under authority at your job as well. God's glorified when we treat our work associates with kindness and respect. Luke 6.31 Do to others as you would have them do to you. Romans 12.18 If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Oh, it's those simple commands, right, that are often the hardest ones to follow. Both of these reflect the heart of Jesus. If we follow him, our heart should be falling in line with these two. And again, you know, if we're going to see our, our work as serving Christ, then treating other people, people that Jesus died for, with kindness and respect is going to be an outflow of that. God's glorified when we expose fraud, dishonesty, or unethical behavior. Ephesians 5, verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And Jesus came to this work, to, to earth, to be the light that shines in the darkness, according to John 1. Serving him in our work means we're bringing his light into our workplaces, and his light is going to root out darkness. God's glorified when we approach our work prayerfully. Do you pray for success in your job? And I'm not just talking about you. How about for your employer or for your coworkers? I often ask God to help me with things at work, especially you know, tough things, maybe a sticky problem I'm working through, or maybe wisdom for you know contentious situation you might be in. I started working with a new client this last week, and I asked God for help and success every single day. For that matter, do you thank God for having your job? A lot of people don't have one. God's glorified when we avoid complaining or grumbling, even in situations that aren't ideal. Listen to this, Philippians 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You know, if you see your work as serving Jesus, it's going to be easier to do this. And that kind of attitude, without grumbling and complaining, is going to shine like a star in the sky. It's going to stick out like a sore thumb. It goes against what most people do. Am I, am I wrong about that? You know, my younger days, just a year or two ago, um, I, I used to look forward to lunchtime so I could go out with the guys I worked with and spend the time griping about our company and its leaders. Wow, that was such a dumb and negative thing to do. It, was putting, it wasn't putting Jesus in a positive light in front of my coworkers. Don't do what I did. Leadership guru John Maxwell says that in every situation, when there's a fire, meaning like you got a problem or a conflict, you got a bucket of water and you got a bucket of gasoline. Which are you going for? Are you going to put out the fire or are you going to make it worse? Be that person at your workplace that puts out fires instead of stoking them up. God's glorified when we refuse to make work and money our idols. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, if you see your work... As for God and not men, this verse kind of takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It's really saying we can't be working to chase after money. Yeah, it pays the bills. But later in Matthew 6, Jesus says we shouldn't be worrying about material needs. If we, if we see our work as being from God, we're not going to have to work to satisfy some craving for money. Listen to what Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said about work and money in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes upon them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. That may have been written thousands of years ago, but boy, is it still true today. 
And lastly, God's glorified when we live simply and give generously. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I think it's interesting that Paul tells the wealthy not to be arrogant. I suppose when you have plenty, it's just easy to think highly of yourself. But Paul says that the wealthy should not put their hope in money, but in God. You know, it's easy to ignore God when you have all your needs met. But the problem with trusting in money is that it disappears all too easily. And we've all heard stories about rich people that have lost it all, right? That's why Paul says those with money need to lay up treasure, not in this life, but in the life to come. Paul says that life in the kingdom is truly life. Now, we've talked a lot today about the theology of work, and we looked at all kinds of scriptures about it. As a follower of Jesus, how can we live this out? I want to suggest five ways. First, work hard. Do your best in your work. Honor God by living in the reality that your work's for Him, not for you, and not for your company. Scripture does warn us against being lazy. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Paul says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, that one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, notice this verse is not about people who are unable to work. Because some people can't because of physical limitations or mental limitations. It's talking about people who are unwilling to work. In 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who has not provided for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And I think I really need to say something here about work that's not God-honoring. Um, if a job's contributing to sin, I think we probably shouldn't go there. Ephesians 4.28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. I've told this story before, so you may have heard it, but some years ago, I was a leader in a company that needed to find work for its staff. One of the other leaders came to me with a potential job for our staff with a company that sold pornography. When I objected, the other leader told me to keep my beliefs out of my work. The sad part is this other leader had the same moral beliefs that I did, but he's going to lay those aside for the sake of money. I told the other leader in no uncertain terms that I was not going to be a part of any such dealing, and I wasn't going to be quiet about why. And I told him that right and right is wrong, and wrong is wrong, and it doesn't matter if it's in work. That all of these things apply to business as well as the rest of life. And the other leader dropped it. I think he was kind of embarrassed. You know, don't rationalize. Don't justify. There's no such thing as your Christian life and your work life. You have one life and it belongs to God. I know there's some of you here, because I've talked to some of you, I know that you've taken stands in your workplace that have cost you something. All I can say is that God sees and he knows. 
Second, honor the Sabbath. So here's the flip side of number one, rest. I think we can easily get out of whack on both sides of the fence here. Some of us struggle with working hard enough. My struggle's always been on the other side of things, which is working too much. God set us an example right from the start of creation in Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. You know, in the Ten Commandments, God established the Sabbath day, one day a week to devote to God and to rest. And in that commandment, God reminds us of his own example during creation. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's your source of rest. Listen to this, Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, maybe you're like me, and it's hard for you to really take in what Jesus is saying here. I I heard this suggestion one time, and it really helped me. Read those verses with your name in there. Come to me, Joe, when you're weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Joe, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Now, I know it may seem like number one and number two here are in conflict, but they aren't. We've got to find that healthy balance between being lazy and being a workaholic. Number three, don't expect your work life to be perfect. Especially some of you who are younger, if you expect your job to be great every day and you're going to get along with all your coworkers and your boss is always going to be fair, you're in for a rude awakening. If you recognize up front that your work situation isn't going to be perfect, you're going to be in a better place to cope with the inevitable difficult situations that arise. Number four, focus on God's will in your work, not your own agenda. And I think for this one, we need to consider the Lord's Prayer. You know, God gives us our daily bread, right? He meets our needs daily. A lot of us, we don't want that. We want our needs to be met for like the next 10 years. Psalm 23 talks about how God meets our needs and makes us lie down in green pastures. Now, I know a lot of us, we hear that here in America, we're thinking about Kansas or somewhere like that, you know. Psalm 23 is talking about Israel. It's what we would call a desert. That green pasture is enough grass for the sheep for one day. Trust God to meet today's needs and don't dedicate your life to storing up wealth. Then five, see your job as a calling. I know I've talked about this quite a bit, but for many of you, if you just see your job as the calling that it is, it would change your whole perspective. Now, I already talked about how we want to separate our Christian life from our work life. Not only is that wrong thinking, It's really fumbling, an amazing opportunity. We spend a good deal of our time at work. We interact with all kinds of people. If you don't see yourself as God's ambassador at your job, you're completely missing out on what God wants to do in you and through you. I wonder how much more impact 
every one of us would have in our communities if every day we just saw our jobs as the calling that they are. So as we wrap up, let's cycle back to the question I asked at the beginning. Should our work be something we love to do or what needs to be done? This is a very interesting question to me. And to answer it, I think we have to look to our example in all things, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? He did both. Jesus did what he loved and what needed to be done. How do I know that? Some of my favorite verses in Scripture. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. These verses tell us we should follow the example of Jesus. Yeah, he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who wants to go through the cross? The humiliation of being on trial the beatings and disrespect. But Jesus endured the cross. He scoffed at its shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him. The joy of saving mankind from an eternity with no hope. The joy of laying down his life for his friends, which scripture says is the greatest form of love. The joy of defeating sin and death and the grave. This work needed to be done. God sent Jesus to save mankind because the creation he loved was doomed without a perfect sacrifice. And he, and he knew Jesus was the only one qualified to do this work. But it was also what Jesus loved to do. He loved to serve the Father. He loved coming to earth to, to serve and teach and heal. But mostly, he loved you enough to die in your place. And verse 3 says we need to consider the example of Jesus so we won't grow weary, so we won't give up, so that we can follow his example in our work. You aren't going to be called to redeem mankind. I get that. But if we see our work as a calling from God, if we understand that we're working for Jesus himself, not just to pay the bills, if we understand that God is using our work to come alongside Jesus in holding all things together, we might just find that it's going to change our heart in a way that will take that job from being something that we do because it's necessary and kindle a heart of love for it. Human beings were made for work. It was God's plan from the beginning, and that work's going to continue throughout all eternity. And our work is for Jesus himself. Let's bow our heads. As we consider what Jesus has done for us and, and his example, I, I think we each need to consider what changes God might want us to make in our work lives. And I believe that God's using his word to speak to hearts all over the room. As we've considered this subject of work today, is God nudging your heart in some way? Maybe to see your job as a calling? Maybe to understand that you're working for Jesus himself, not, not a human employer? Maybe to work harder at your job? Or maybe not work as hard. 
Or maybe it's to see the money you earn in the right perspective. If God's talking to you today in some way about your work, would you raise your hand and say to me, Pastor Joe, will you pray for me? Thank you. Lots of hands. Thank you. Maybe you're struggling in your work. Maybe, maybe you need work. Maybe you need help with a situation related to your job. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you too? Yeah, I see those hands. Thank you. And I've been there. God, I, I thank you for this opportunity to just open the word and look at it together. God, for those that you've spoken to from your word about different aspects of our work, seeing it's for you or maybe getting our work life in balance or whatever the case is, God, I know that you've, you've spoken that customized message to hearts all over this room. God, I pray that those folks would take the things that they have heard today and commit to making changes that are going to help them in their lives. And God, for those folks that are having struggles in their jobs, maybe with a boss or maybe they need work or whatever the case is, oh God, move in those situations like only you can. God, you have not forgotten those situations and you want to work. You want to come and be in the hearts of your children. God, help every one of those, no matter what they are. Now, God, help us to cement these commitments to you, and we ask this in your name. Amen.